0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University Research, provides insights into where tornado casualty rates are highest and how to improve casualty prediction models. Find out more at tamu.edu. And Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org.
1: Welcome, everybody, to a special live edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. Thank you for being here so early. We're doing a supersized version of the TribCast with double the amount of journalists you normally hear from. We've all hardly slept, so we figured why not get on the stage first thing today. Uh, Patrick, as you can tell, is running late, but he is on his way and will be zooming in to see any time Um, We'll do just about 45 minutes up here uh, before ending sort of the actual recording part and leaving about 10 minutes of Q&A at the end, so if you've got your questions, have those on hand for then. Uh, This event is supported by Raise Your Hand Texas, AT&T, and Walmart. Though donors and corporate sponsors underwrite our events, they play no role in determining the content, panelists, or line of questioning. I can guarantee you that because I wrote these questions at about 2 a.m. a few hours ago. (laughs) All right. So let's get started. Like I said, Patrick will be running in at any point. So we'll just welcome him when he gets here. Um, Here we go. Hello and welcome to the March 4th edition of the Texas Tribune Tripcast, a very special live edition the morning after Super Tuesday. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined up first by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Cheers. Politics reporter, Alex Samuels. Morning. And soon enough, politics reporter, Patrick Svitek, who is hitting every light on his way in. (laughs) Uh, Let's start uh, with the Biden win at the top of the ticket. Um, Talk about a way to close, right? I mean, his campaign surged to life after South Carolina, the day after early voting concluded in Texas, so not great timing. One million Democrats had already voted. Uh, How surprising was this ultimately?
2: Um, it was pretty surprising to me. I was at a Bernie Sanders watch party for most of the night, and the mood of the crowd it was just like a roller coaster. Um, you know, the early vote, Sanders was ahead, especially in Travis County. He was pulling through, um, and then the Election Day vote came through, and it was just like the needle just started tilting in Biden's favor. Um, obviously, he got a huge show of support, uh, I believe it was Monday, when Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Beto O'Rourke all endorsed him, so he had... All these quote unquote establishment moderate Democrats backing him. So I'm sure that helped him um, in his final pitch on a Super Tuesday. Yeah. Ross, were you surprised?
3: I was a little surprised that he broke 30%. Um, he was the happening thing after Monday. Um, the polling that we did and some others did, the polling was a little bit all over the place, but most of the polling had Biden and Sanders within striking distance of each other. That's kind of how the night played out, that race called late. Um, Partly because everybody was waiting for Sanders to have a surge that he didn't have, um, but yeah, it's a little bit surprising, and it you know it's a nice piece of momentum going into the next phase. The other thing that I noted in the presidential race was uh, it looks like Bloomberg had you know <laughs> more support than I thought he was going to have. I thought he'd mm. be down around ten or twelve percent. He's over fifteen. So. Yeah,
1: I can't help but look at the share of votes that Klobuchar and Buttigieg did pick up, right. and think the difference that will make once we actually get all the numbers in and start doing the delegate math. I mean, it was a pretty sizable tongue.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And I think the idea of these endorsements and when they, you know, eventually dropped out of the race, I do wonder, you know, how do we measure the effect, if any, that those endorsements had? You had everybody ending up in Dallas, of all places, for this sort of, like, unity rally with, surprise, surprise, Beth O'Rourke shows up. I mean, is there... Until we get the election day versus early voting. Well, that, you
3: know, I was going to say that's the number you're is looking that, for. Right? How do we
1: really make sense of this until then?
3: Well, you know, we got a perfect sort of petri dish here that you can, when we have those numbers, we have a different election in the early vote, different information in the election in the early vote than we had on election day. And you can see just directly side by side um, whether all those endorsements and all of the Monday news and all of the South Carolina result had any effect on this or if that's the way Texas was going anyway. Yeah.
1: Hi, Patrick.
3: Good morning. All the red
1: lights, huh? Thank you for keeping my chair here. (laughs) Uh, Give us your thoughts. Well, we were just discussing, you know, Biden coming up on top. Ross was surprised by the amount, the share of votes he actually did get. What did you make of him ultimately being the winner?
4: Yeah, I mean, we're still breaking it down, obviously, but I think it was pretty clear that, um, you know, he really did benefit from a, legitimate, genuine kind of surge on Election Day, people who maybe were waiting to see, waiting to cast their ballot until Election Day to see who was viable, and obviously saw that strong show of support he got on the the eve of Super Tuesday, which took place across uh, Texas, of all places, where he was able to get the support of three of his former rivals, including Beto O'Rourke. And so, um, you know, I I remember just looking last night at the breakdown between early voting and Election Day in Harris County, and it was pretty stark, you know, uh, Sanders and Biden were basically tied in Harris County in in the early vote. Um, And then election day came around and uh, Biden had a a huge lead the last time I checked on election day in Harris County.
1: Yeah. And what an election day it was in Harris County.
4: Yeah. It may still be going on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, There's still, there's still a line in Texas Southern.
1: It hasn't been over for (laughs) that long. Um, I mean, I do think that the idea of Beth O'Rourke eventually coming out, am I, am I missing that he at one point said he wasn't going to endorse in the presidential
3: he did say he that. Did. At, yeah, he did say that at one point. <laughs> he wasn't going to endorse and he was particularly harsh about Biden. And um, so kind of interesting. A lot of his followers were like, how could you? The, I mean, he's not
1: really a moderate, right? Like we, we don't actually consider him a moderate in this spectrum of democratic politics that is on display on that stage. Do we? That's our work. Mm-hmm.
4: Not
3: in his presidential bid.
4: I, I don't think he is a quote moderate in the way that people would use the term to talk, to, uh, talk about Joe Biden. Oh, um, yes, we're going to take your gun. You know, I think, inter- <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think, you know, O'Rourke's uh, political brand has been more kind of, um, if you go back to his first, you know, congressional race um, and his Senate campaign, has been more kind of disruptor than kind of someone who is, you know, uh, you know a maintainer of the status quo necessarily. So um, it was, I guess, a little bit off brand if you put it in that context. Sure.
1: Uh, so the actual importance of last night is the delegate count um, and the distribution of that, which is still sort of up in the air. Right. I don't think we even have all of the results yet on the Secretary of State's website. Uh, but if we if we look at what we do have now, what we know up to this point, at least on the statewide vote, it's looking like Biden, Sanders, Bloomberg. Uh, are we? What do we think of Bloomberg's million dollar, multi million dollar gamble and sort of
2: how that played out for him? Um, I think what was obviously working to Bloomberg's disadvantage was, I mean, a couple things. One is that he was waiting until Super Tuesday to compete. So he was already playing catch up with Biden, Sanders and some of the other big contenders. Except
1: in America, Samoa. (laughs) He
2: did well there. (laughs) Um, But the other thing there is that I don't think he had any foresight into the fact that Buttigieg, Klobuchar we're going to drop out on Monday and then endorse Biden. So it's, you know, if you're looking for that moderate candidate to support, it seems like everyone's sort of coalescing behind this one other person that's not you. So obviously the election day, uh, I mean, we don't have the numbers yet, but it doesn't seem like the election day vote was going in his favor. Um, Of course, he spent a lot of money here in Texas. He had a pretty strong ground game in the state, um, but to just barely be above 15% and pick up, you know, whatever statewide delegates he can get... uh, it's probably not looking too great for him. The last I heard, he's going to reassess uh, his campaign today. So we'll kind of see how that shakes out.
1: That must be infuriating, though. If you are running in this election, you're trying to get as many delegates as you can, and then someone who just barely makes a threshold t- takes up enough statewide votes and then possibly drops out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, the delegate <laughs> math conundrum yeah, is just... Every, every
3: year we find out a new, way, a new way that the delegate thing is screwed up. And it's screwed up in a new way this year, so it's fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still screwed up.
2: yeah, it also must be frustrating for Elizabeth Warren because before Bloomberg swooped in, she had the most prominent crown game in the state, and she right. built sort of like a month long operation here in Texas only to get what was it eleven percent right. right
1: Yeah, I was surprised by, you know, we have our our map looking at counties and who's winning in which counties. I was surprised by the amount of counties that did go. Bernie maybe not so much the amount but the concentration of them I mean Harris County was sort of decidedly a Biden County then you had sort of that part of the I-35 corridor very clearly going for Bernie Sanders I mean are we surprised by the amount of blue that basically ended up on our that's perfectly cool. timed map that just went up <laughs> behind us just then
3: just then, the map drove I mean up. that's
1: a lot of blue down on the border right are we surprised at all by Bernie performing there? I mean, is it sort of the conventional wisdom we had heard coming into Super Tuesday about his support and play for Latino voters?
4: Well, there were a couple of polls in recent weeks that showed that um, Latino voters were really powering his, his strength uh, in Texas. Uh, there was one that came out, uh, I think it was from Dallas Morning News, University of uh, Texas at Tyler, that showed him doubling up, uh, more than doubling Biden among Latino voters in Texas. So there were a few... I think signals ahead of time that this was going to be a strong uh you know a strong voting block for him.
3: Yeah. And that and that progressive wave on the border almost ate Henry Cuellar. I mean that's you know there was a lot of voting that way, you know they voted for Bernie and I think every vote for Bernie was probably you know dangerous to to Henry Cuellar who was um up against a progressive so.
1: Yeah. I mean I I will point out though that I mean sure you can measure "Quote unquote, the Latino vote on the border because they are the only places in right. the county that are so homo- in the state that are so homogenous. But there are way more Latinos voting in places like Harris County than in some of those border counties. Right. Right. I mean, it feels a little weird that we always kind of look to the border to see support for some candidates when we know that.
3: Well, it's because of the homogeneity. But you're right. You know, Harris County has more Hispanics than any place else in the state. So yeah." All
1: right. Well, let's move on to the U.S. Senate. M.J. Hagar was easily leading for most of the evening, at least once we got a sort of a good amount of results. Um, we still don't actually know who's making the runoff, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, we don't. We don't know for sure. Last I checked, you know, Royce West was ahead of Christina Zinzu Ramirez uh, by like a tenth of a percentage point. With still, um, you know, I don't know, one percent, two percent of precincts uh, still am not reporting. Um, so late last night, it was, there was a lot more uncertainty. It was very, there were like, you know, several candidates that were clustered behind Hager. So, um, you know, but right now it's looking like it's, you know, come down to either Royce or, or Christina as the person who could make it into that number two spot. What,
1: what is the lay of the land for that runoff? If you do have a Hagar versus a Royce West or a Hagar versus a Cintin Ramirez?
4: Yeah, I think the contrast there is actually pretty, um, Clear cut, you know, Hager's been trying to run as kind of this like, you know, she's been running on her military experience, being a working mother, being someone who's kind of an outsider to the political system. She did run for Congress, you know, last cycle, but otherwise running as someone who is is kind of, uh, an outsider and not a you know quote career politician. Um, so you take for example, Royce West, you know he's been in the Texas Senate for 27 years um, and he's running on his experience and so you could totally see in a, in a runoff there what the contrast be- would be between the two of them and it's a contrast I think both of them would welcome um, because it's you know they both have been running on their different kinds of experience. Uh, if it's MJ and Christina in a runoff, um, I imagine that the contrast there would fall more along ideological lines. Um, you know MJ has run one of the I would say you know of those 12 candidates hate to you know Generalize or oversimplify, but you know in this primary ran one of the more moderate campaigns ideologically and uh, there's no doubt that Christina you know positioned herself as one of the most progressive candidates and so In a runoff between the two of them you could totally see how it would be a, a, more of an ideological contrast Yeah, yeah,
3: I think this is going west way right now. It looks like you know the numbers behind you the uh, Since Ramirez is about 6,000 votes ahead of him There's a gray dot, Tarrant County, over there. Pretty Um,
1: big gray dot. I looked
3: at at the Tarrant County numbers before we came on stage, and West was 15,000 votes ahead of Sinsun Ramirez in Tarrant County. So there may be a wave coming in, tsunami alert. (laughs)
1: out of tarrant county of all places right 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 exactly (laughs) Uh, what do we make of the sort of regional bases of support obviously the dfw was sort of a key one for royce west amanda edwards down in harris county did we see those come through in the ways people might have generally expected for some of these candidates
4: i think in dallas counties the support definitely came through for royce west i mean i don't know I don't think we can scroll over it, but I mean, he w- he was carrying Dallas County last time I checked with, you know, 43% of the vote, you know, close to 45% right. of the vote. And so, Same thing in you know, he clearly had a, you know, f- pretty formidable base in Dallas County, um, you know, and I think in Harris County, the vote was obviously a little more split. You had, you know, kind of two candidates who could probably most credibly call that their base, Chris Bell and, and Amanda Edwards. Uh, but you also had Royce West cutting into the, Royce West cutting into the vote there in, in a pretty healthy way as well. Christina Zinzun Ramirez, you know, she, I think, targeted in her campaign, and if you also look at the super PAC spending that was done on her behalf, targeted South Texas and El Paso. And and you could see, again, I think we have it on the map there. You could see how that may have paid dividends for her if you look at the light pink, all the, you know, stretching out to El Paso. And so, you know, I think for her, you know, it was, you know, she's from, Austin I believe or at least resides in Austin may be from other places earlier in the in in her life in Texas But you know for her it was trying to find cobble together I think a geographic coalition uh, that was enough to make it to the runoff Um, And you could see kind of the path that she and her supporters chose to kind of chart through the state
3: It's gonna be interesting to see how much um, The others split the vote that didn't go to MJ Hager and you know when when you get into a runoff whoever it is You know, if you look at this map, she looks like she dominated the triangle of Dallas-Fort Worth-Houston-Austin-San Antonio. But the other, you know, the rest of that was split with 11 other candidates. And when you consolidate that behind one, it'll be interesting to see whether the people whose candidates are out run to Hager or run to the other person in the runoff.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing about this map that I can't help, to remark on is the amount of orange that's on there, particularly down on the border. I mean, Mama, Mama Garcia had a great night. Yeah, She was, yeah, for, she, she was think,
3: in second <laughs> for a while. It was, yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's, you know, we've, we've had this sort of conversation on and off with different democratic primaries and Dem- democratic folks will tell you, you know, operatives and whatnot will tell you in low information races, people take cues from last names. I think Mama Garcia is not actually Hispanic, and so that is adds an added twist. But, I mean, the idea of how much she was still able to pick up with probably, you know, a bare-bones campaign, at least compared to sort of the lead candidates, just shows how much was still in flux in this race, even to the end, and really how little knowledge most voters had about
3: it. Well, I think that was the animating feature of the race, was that most of the voters didn't know the candidates, and, you know, much less... Differences between them, and you go in. You know, if you go into a general election, you look for party cues, right? But in a, in a primary, you go in and there are other cues that you have to go on. Do you go on, you know, oh, mama, or do you go on Garcia? Mama. Uh, okay. sort of, yeah, I'm excuse mama. me, part missing. Yeah, <laughs> ma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, we are running out of time for this first panel, So, but I do want to get to the sort of primary matchups we were paying some close attention to. Turns out the establishment maybe didn't have all that much to worry about, at least on the congressional level. Uh, let's start with Kay Granger, who very easily made it out of her primary. Are we surprised by the outcome in the end?
4: I was a little surprised by how wide the margin was. Last time I checked, it was easily double digits in the in the you know low to mid teens. I thought that race is, uh, I thought that she was going to win it, but it was going to be maybe a little closer. It ended up being you know, again a pretty a pretty wide margin. Right. I think she has President Trump to thank uh, for a lot of that. I mean, he endorsed her uh, when she was under fire from her primary opponent. You're just for trying to make a
1: being... case for endorsements yeah. so you can keep. <laughs> yeah, I always love about
4: to talk about them. endorsements, <laughs> um, but you know that was her main vulnerability going into this. Uh, you know, going into this primary. I mean that is that is the name of the game in every Republican primary everywhere right now is your how loyal have you been to the president. Um, and you know, even though you know the comments she had in the past or when she was speaking out against his uh, the access Hollywood tape, it was still construed as being anti-Trump and not, you know, being supportive of Trump in the past. And I think that was a that was a big vulnerability in the context of this current Republican primary environment. Um, and the president endorsing her. And her campaign and her allies just relentlessly hammering that endorsement. Um, I think was it was the central message here. I mean, you look at the, the, ad, the TV ads that were running this race. Um, you know, she's done great things for Fort Worth. I think there's no doubt about that. But that was not in the TV ads that were running this race. And I don't think that was I didn't get every piece of mail, but it was all about Trump's endorsement, I need to go fight with Trump. I need to go stand with Trump. Trump needs me back in Congress. Trump, Trump, Trump. Um, and so I think that was a pretty critical uh, you know piece of this victory for her.
3: It also you know Trump is closest to the people most likely to vote for chris putnam and so it really knocked the legs out of his campaign you know if trump had been with putnam that would have been a different race um but putnam was running against the establishment and trump went with the establishment in that race
2: Yeah.
1: Let's go to the other uh, congressional primary that we were looking at, the matchup between Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros down in my hometown of Laredo. Yeah, what Uh, happened, Alexa? There was one Evan Smith (laughs) prancing around the newsroom at one point, so sure that Cisneros had a chance. Uh, Sure, it was close, but ultimately Cuellar made it out. Alex, what do you make of sort of, you know, in reality how close it was and how much does Cisneros have to thank Bernie Sanders for that?
2: I think the Sanders endorsement was probably a big part of her margin of victory. Of course, Cuellar has a lot of name recognition, like uh, Granger has a lot of congressional clout. um, And he is, what is his, I can't remember what term he was going for. um, But he just has that behind him. Like 30th, probably. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think sort of the progressive wave that we saw, I don't know where the map went, but uh, the people voting for Bernie, as Ross said, uh, down in the, in the valley area were probably also maybe voting for Cisneros.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were looking at Bear County at one point in right. the night and thinking what the where where the race was at? It was kind of early still, but looking at the early voting margins for Bernie and Bear County and how that may have been pulling into that district that does run right. up from Webb County to Santa Antonio. And
3: Cuellar was lucky, I think, in that light that he didn't have more of Bear County. <laughs> <He> <laughs> I mean, that's a, a that's a pretty long one, right. yeah.
1: But right. it, it is—it's not as big of a population center as Webb County and the other combined Valley counties in that district,
3: be. right? It, and it was clear that the Bernie voters were with. Cisneros on on that race. Um, So um, I think he saved it at home.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we've got for this first panel. Let's give them a hand for being here so early. Uh, While we bring up our next panel, we've got two more sponsors to go to.
0: Baylor University celebrates 175 years since its founding, while growing a research enterprise grounded in its historic academic strength and Christian commitment. Find out more at baylor.edu. And the 2020 Hot Luck Food and Music Fest features Maddie Matheson, May Lynn, and Gregory Gorday, just to name a few, along with Dinosaur Jr., Hayes Carl, and DJ Jazzy Jeff. It all goes down May 21st to 24th in Austin, Texas. Find out more information at hotluckfest.com.
1: All right, well, joining me now are managing editor, Matthew Watkins. Hello there. Politics reporter, Cassie Pollock. Good morning. And Tribune CEO, Evan Smith.
5: Do you even know who Jazzy Jeff is?
1: I have no idea who yeah, that is. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. Guess what? I knew that. Is this the part where you start dunking on me for all my wrong predictions? The
1: entire time. Yeah,
5: well. You don't. Know,
1: yeah. You actually don't.
5: I, I, I look at the cisneros Quail race, and I think I was right. It was close, right? You, Come but on. You,
1: you can't be right about... Being wrong, you said she was going to
5: win. <laughs> this is this is what it's like to work at the Texas Tribune. Even when you're wrong, you're right.
1: <laughs> you're no, you are almost always wrong.
2: Evan.
6: Hello. How's it going, Cassie? Oh,
1: it's going great, Matthew. I'm, I'm happy to just be here. You have
5: your conversation. We'll keep going
1: All right. Well, we're still waiting for polling locations to come in to really get a better sense for early voting turnout, election day turnout, particularly on the Democratic side, but. I think Evan is dying to tell me about his reaction to last night's outcome at the presidential level. I, I am? I think so. Uh,
5: look, uh, I would have predicted and did uh, honestly think to myself as recently as yesterday afternoon that Sanders was probably going to win Texas, that the margin would be closer, but that Sanders would still win. It was nothing short of remarkable to see how the election day turnout differed from the early vote. The, the, the tell to me was that when the early vote came in, in two very large population centers, Dallas County and Harris County, Biden was effectively tied, maybe a tiny bit ahead of um, of Sanders. Sanders was ahead on the early vote in Travis County, Bear County, El Paso County, but Dallas and Houston, that's a significant part of the electorate. And the fact that Biden was able to hold his own in the early vote meant that if as predictions came around, he did well on election day, he would be able to win. And really it was at a point last night where we saw the early vote. I wanna credit Jasper Scherer of the Houston Chronicle for for being the first person person to flag this last night, that when the election day vote came in, Biden was almost two to one ahead of Sanders in Harris County. And it was really that election day pivot uh, uh, ultimately decided the election. Look, what you said about the Cuellar Cuellar winning and Granger winning, this was a bad night for the burnt ends of the brisket, right? Both sides, the left left, and the right right, did not have a good night last night, and uh the establishment effectively had a good had a good day yeah
6: yeah i mean there's there was a lot of questions coming into this election um you know uh, Abby Livingston had a story uh after it was looking almost kind of inevitable for Bernie after a while that the the kind of panic among um Especially the establishment and the um, Texas Democrats, you know, what does it look like with Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket with all of our other plans in the state, whether it's flipping the Texas House or winning a bunch of congressional seats, um, you know, being competitive in the US Senate race, all of those things. And uh, I feel like what we saw here was a really ra- the rallying that they were asking for. And, um, you know, it wasn't a decisive victory, but. You also saw it in the Cuellar race, and in, in MJ Hager leading the votes. No, and if, in and the, if Royce
5: West is the second finisher in the Senate thing, that's a reasonably moderate runoff between those two.
6: Yeah. and right? so, so whether it's thinking strategically or whether it's where the Democratic Party is ideologically in Texas right now, the, the answer seemed to be, maybe not by a wide margin, margin, but decisively kind of stay closer to the middle than, than going far to the left.
1: But do, do we feel that that outcome helps? So, I mean, we we heard about concerns that Bernie was not good enough at the top of the ticket in Texas, given the broader political stakes. You know, you had, obviously that was coming from Biden people for the most part. But if you, now that you actually have this final outcome, I guess not so final yet, but an outcome that pretty much splits favorably toward Biden, does that make making the case for Bernie in November if he's? does become the nominee harder in a state like Texas that so clearly went for Biden, particularly in the most populous areas of the state.
6: Yeah, ultimately it's not Texas's decision, right? And there's a bunch of other states and the biggest prize last night was California. Um,
5: The election's not over. I mean, let's let's accept the fact that you've got a result in Texas, but we're still a ways from the convention and from knowing who the nominee is. Look, however, however, if you're a Democrat, in the business of trying to flip the Texas house, Cassie, you have to think that the Biden news is potentially good news, right? Because if the assumption, be proven out or not, that a more moderate candidate at the top of the ticket is going to help Democrats in the fall with the down ballot stuff. That was the anxiety that you're talking about.
1: Sure. Cassie, and the, what and was the result sense, was good. What was the sense that you got from folks sort of watching this closely either as people who had endorsed you know, Biden or other candidates, I think we still don't have any legislative endorsements for Bernie Sanders. Uh, But what was sort of the sense that you were getting from those folks?
7: Yeah, it kind of kept coming back to uh, at least Democrats in the Texas House and Democrats who are working to flip it, you know, that they were relieved and maybe their biggest takeaway of the night and their biggest uh, victory, if you can call it, that was that Biden was winning because in their book that helps them. There was obviously this fear as Matthew was alluding to about having somebody like a Sanders at the top of the ticket in November, uh, hurting their chances down ballot uh, to flip some targeted races and some competitive seats. Um, after last night, at least, uh, you know, they can kind of point to that and say, hey, look, we're in better footing or, in, or you know, in better sh- on better footing or in better shape than we were, uh, you know, before sure. Super Tuesday.
1: Yeah. How do we feel... You know, the counties and the areas of the state that the Democrats are depending on to flip the house, right? You've got the DFW suburbs. You've got some of the I-35 corridor suburban counties, obviously the major metros. Uh, what do we make of how those split last night Does it make sense to even look at Bernie versus Biden as opposed to just overall turnout? Though I don't think you can look at primary turnout and think too much about November. So so if
5: you work backwards from where, Cassie knows this better than anybody. If you work backwards from the numbers that the Democrats need to flip the house, it's a net nine, net pickup of nine. The bulk of those seats are in the DFW area and in Houston. And the Democratic turnout in those two areas was pretty big. Now that's a primary. It's not a general. Different in the fall, but but Democrats are engaged. You know, I, I still think that the chances of of the of the Democrats picking up the House, even with Biden at the top of the ticket, it's kind of one in five, maybe. You know, one, one in five. In, I mean, maybe twenty percent. I mean, that's not. It's not zero percent. Right? Sure. Which is significant. You just
1: don't want to be wrong again. Well, no, but look,
5: look, I've I've, I've said a couple times, I think, to you in this setting that uh, last year the governor's uh, political consultant, Dave Carney, said that there is no chance of a Democrat taking back the Texas House. That is false on its face. There is absolutely a chance that they take back the Texas House. But it's a little bit more like a, a three carom bank shot on a dive bar pool table. I mean, it's not like it's a straight shot. Sometimes that ball goes in, right? But it's not easy. Would you say, agree that it's not an easy uh, thing for them?
7: Yeah, I mean, I'd say that they have, uh, you know, an uphill climb in terms of holding on to the 12 seats that they flipped in 2018 and then picking up an additional nine on top of that. That seems to be kind of the general consensus out there. But to that point, and, you know, we keep saying this, like a lot can happen between now and November, Uh, when people are going, you know, to cast their ballot in the general election. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on the national climate and,
5: you know. There's a lot we don't know. And to that, I would say, ask Ryan Sitton about how Election Day outcomes surprise you, right? I
6: think um, if, as Democrats try to kind of gain a stronger position in the state. There's two kind of growth areas that they're looking at, right? They're looking at the college educated sub- suburbs, and they're looking at the Hispanic vote. And those two different areas were, seemed pretty split last night. The The suburbs seemed to go more towards Biden, seemed more comfortable with Biden. And the um, heavily Hispanic areas in the state along the border, El Paso, Bear County, went Bernie. And so, that's an interesting thing. So are you having to choose here between activating two different areas um, in the general election? You know, But if we're talking about flipping the house, correct me if I'm wrong, the suburbs are probably a more important area to do that than... Well,
1: yeah, and the people that you are thinking about in the suburbs are white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, You're not thinking about the same sort of population. I mean, there is a lot of room for pickup in the suburbs, I think, among voters of color because if you look at... The way those suburbs are changing, both politically, in the, in the political sense, it right. is also demographic. I mm-hmm. mean, you have white suburban voters starting to vote Democratic, thinking in a more sort of moderate right. sense. But you also just have more people of color mm-hmm. and people of color whose experiences are very different than sort of the traditional ones we think on the border. To, to
5: Matthew's point, Alexa, if Matt Shaheen's in trouble in the fall in Plano, it's the energized Biden moderate Democrats who are going to be the problem for him, not the Bernie people. If the Dwayne Bohack seat in Houston, which was decided by fewer than 100 votes last time, Bohack's not coming back. If that seat does go from red to blue, it's going to be the Biden moderate Democrats, not the Bernie bros, who are going to be the energizing force behind that. So I think Matthew's exactly right. The, 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 The break in the Democratic Party last night probably benefits the chances in some of those races.
1: Though it feels like looking at the numbers on the border, we have to sort of do away with the Bernie bro concept in Texas. I, there aren't a whole lot of bros on the border, I can tell you that.
5: Well, and to, and to the El Paso point, I mean, Matthew's right about that. But at the same time, the two most prominent Democrats in El Paso, Beto O'Rourke and Veronica Escobar, are Team Biden. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? And so let's see what happens in the fall yeah. in terms of people turning everybody.
1: So if you're a Republican thinking about November, how are you feeling this morning? I'm going to have Cassie go first on that one.
7: Oh, man. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're feeling probably pretty okay. As we've been saying since the filing deadline, from a candidate filing deadline closed in December at the state house level, there weren't a whole lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of appetite really on both sides, but particularly on the GOP side to have them fight with each other in the primary, which has kind of been like a trademark. Um, You know, by my count, two Texas House incumbents, Dan Flynn and J.D. Sheffield, are heading to runoffs. Everybody else, you know, there's obviously more runoffs than that, but they're competing for open seats and whatnot. Um, Aside from that, it was a relatively tame night last night. I mean, um, parties staying focused on November, continuing to just try to build ground. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting in the... uh, there's um, a seat at, outside of Houston. Um, Gina Kalani uh, is a Democrat, and she flipped it in 2018. And there were two Republicans, the former state rep who used to hold the seat, um, uh, Mike Schofield, and then um, Angelica Garcia, who is a Hispanic Republican backed by Abbott. And uh, Schofield won that pretty handily. So it'll be him and Kalani on the ballot. So as we're talking about the Hispanic vote and you know who uh, is trying to appeal to what base and whatnot, um, I thought that that was just maybe indicative of, you know, a couple things here and there, so.
1: Yeah. If you're a Republican thinking about November and you wake up today and see those turnout numbers, how are you
5: feeling?
6: I think this is, this is she's setting up another fight between you two.
5: <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm going to say what I've said before, that at the presidential level, if Jose Altuve and George Springer were the Democratic ticket, this state would not be in play, even if they stole signals in the dugout, Okay. <laughs> too soon it is not too soon it is not at all too soon (laughs) cheaters hashtag (laughs) cheaters look i i think that the the trick for the democrats here from a turnout standpoint is going to be to keep the presidential race close Mm -hmm. and hopefully help some people further down the ballot i think the focus here has to be on stuff below the presidential level so if you're a republican you wake up not particularly worried about the presidential frankly not particularly worried about the senate race unless the entire thing collapses around your ankles between now and November. You're mostly concerned that turnout is gonna ultimately drive flips in the House, the SD19 seat in the Senate, and that's going to a runoff, by the way, also we haven't talked about that. The Democratic uh, primary for that one leaves us with a runoff in SD19. And you're looking at some of those congressional races. You're you're wondering whether finally the dog caught the car on uh, Congress District 23, Democrats take that back finally, after a couple of, of near misses. Are are any of the other races, is the Wendy Davis-Chip Roy race affected by turnout? Um, Is the old Kenny Marchant seat affected by turnout? Probably a harder lift. Is the Dan Crenshaw race, depending upon who the Democratic nominee is, potentially impacted by turnout? Is the Fort Bend County race affected by turnout? It's really further down ballot, I think.
6: Look, I think there was a certain... there were certain Republicans who were giddy at the thought of a Bernie Sanders led ticket in Texas. And to the extent that that's looking less likely, it's still a very strong possibility, but to the extent that the momentum has fallen from there, I think that's a little bit of a disappointing night for Republicans. Um, And I also think, you know, if you look at the head-to-head polls right now, they're pretty close. You know, the you put a hypothetical Democrat against a hypothetical Republican, and there's a pretty close margin. I'm not saying, look, the Republicans should feel cautiously optimistic about, about 2020, especially at the top of the ballot in Texas. But I think the caution is fairly new, and nothing changed last night to remove that caution. In fact, it probably kept that caution or maybe... Made that caution feel more cautious.
1: I I really ran out of steam there. He's barely slept, y'all. You're
5: you're forgiven for that. Um, But but I thought what Cassie said is exactly right. You know that probably with Biden as opposed to Bernie coming out at the top of the presidential, that is probably a net positive for the Democrats. Thinking about their prospects, at least on the House, yeah. Right, and and that heading into redistricting, that's the ball game. Honestly, if if the Democrats are thinking about one slice of this election cycle, it's not really the presidential, although it would be a game changer if the Democrats won Texas. It's not really the Senate race, although that would be a game changer too. It's not really the Texas Senate, certainly. It's not even the congressional seats. It's the Texas House because of redistricting and the prospect of getting back the speakership. That's the big thing. And in that respect, it was probably a slightly net positive night.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've been thinking a lot about the, say they don't get the nine seats that they need, maybe lose some of the 12, but if you can close the margin in the House enough, if you can pick up one or two congressional seats, even if you don't flip the House, that is still at least gaining some ground on redistricting because you can, Republicans can no longer draw lines and say... We're protecting the incumbents. That's the reason behind those lines because the incumbents are now Democrats. I mean, I do think we've been thinking a lot about this as like a zero sum game in terms of flipping the House and the effect that that has on redistricting. But I also think that there's an extent to which even narrowing the margin could make a bigger difference than we've kind of been thinking about.
7: Yeah well,, okay. look what it, you know look look at this past legislative session. I know that some people like Craig Goldman would disagree with that, but you know.
1: Where you felt it in the tenor of the legislation and the right. conversation. There are plenty of
5: people who say that the narrower partisan split in the house resulted in an all-business, no-bullshit session. That's exactly right.
1: Can you imagine if we end up with a 76-74 house?
5: Some of us have been alive during a house in which you had <laughs> 76 Listen, I've been alive.
1: I just was in school, <laughs> K-12. through <Right. laughs> All right, let's talk about turnout. Uh, and I will start this conversation by saying... I am very cautious, to borrow Matthew's favorite word this morning, <laughs> about taking much from the numbers we saw yesterday and will continue to see and extrapolating to November. I'm very cautious. That said, turnout was kind of nuts yeah. in some of these places.
6: Yeah, it's still lower than it's going to be in November, and it's hard to say who totally. didn't show up. But yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about uh, people waiting six hours in line in Houston to vote. Um Obviously, I think some of the responsibility of that falls on the people who are running the elections, but also not, not just some. yeah, but also it's an indication that a lot of people were excited about this race, and um, I think Democrats hope that continues going forward. I, I,
5: Alexa, I, you know that I'm kind of on the warpath about this. The last voter at Texas Southern University last night cast his ballot at after one in the morning. If you are making students at a at an h B-C-U, wait seven hours to vote, you are asking to be accused of voter suppression and you are asking to have your ass hauled into court. Now, let's be clear. The responsibility for that is not on the state. It's on the local election administrator who in Harris County happens to be a Democrat, right? So what the hell happened at, at Texas Southern and in other places where the lines were that long? No one in 2020 in this country should have to wait seven hours to vote.
1: I don't disagree at all. But let me back up before we talk about Harris County, just to say that the lines that we were seeing and the wait times that we were seeing after polls closed were not exclusive to Harris County, right? Travis County was pretty bad also. Yeah, I mean, there were voters at Texas State that were three and a half hours, they were looking at three and a half hour waits after polls closed. I mean, this was, there and Texas State, a place where there was a lawsuit, in 2018 over not enough early voting. This time they got 12 days of early voting. They got an early uh, election day site and there were still insane lines. I mean, I do think that there is a portion of this that was unexpected turnout. We're still waiting to see the early voting versus election day. I do think there's a portion of that. Harris County though was a hot mess. I mean, without a doubt in ways that obviously disenfranchised people. The idea of waiting seven hours in in a line, like. If you don't have childcare, if you have a job the next day, I mean, that is not something that's accessible to anyone and it's problematic. And we will have more reporting on this later today. But uh, I, you know, I think the thing we do have to think about is elections are run by counties, but the primaries are run by counties in partnership with the parties. And in some places you've got shared primaries and in some places you've got joint primaries where people can vote. It's like in Travis County, you go up and you're voting next to a Republican and they've got a different ballot, but you're voting on your machine and you might be voting Democrat or vice versa. And you can vote in the same sort of machine. Harris County did not have a joint primary, and so they had to divvy up machines between Democrats and Republicans. And once polls closed, some of those Republican places were closed at 7 p.m. They had zero line, and the Democrats had hundreds of people still waiting.
6: And there's just machines sitting there unused, right? When that's well, going and that's why. Well,
1: can't use them. is yeah. the thing because you can't reload a ballot that quickly in, and convert a machine to a Democratic machine. That said, I mean, I don't think that you can look at what happened at TSU and not think about how problematic that was for so many people who just literally cannot afford to wait in line.
5: When upper middle class white kids at SMU are waiting for seven hours to vote, talk to me about what happened at TSU. I mean, I just think it's a bad look. It may be entirely coincidental that at the HBCU, People are online for seven hours to vote. It may be entirely coincidental, but it is a bad look in a state where we've had problems with voter access, voter protection, and allegations of voter suppression. I just don't see any other way to say it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the idea of thinking about, if you think about wait times in general, you know, people often look at wait times and it's like, oh, great, people are coming out. It's enthusiasm. Oftentimes, it's also just like a lack of. Of a of, of faulty way of allocating resources, right, at the election level. But I also do. We should point out that in Harris County, you can now vote at any polling location. They are now part of the countywide voting, the way many other big counties are. I don't. I I don't disagree that it was problematic that at TSU in particular, people were waiting seven hours. I mean, like that is outrageous. I mean, seven. It's hours. insane. Also, how
5: about the people who waited seven hours? Yeah. I let's mean, give credit to those patriots, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty great.
1: But you know, it's the sort of thing where you can be inspired by them, but it's also outrageous. Like you should also be outraged. But it sucks, by it. though. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's just insane.
6: Well, I, I mean, and let's just think about this for a second. You know, the there were some problems in 2019 in a very small constitutional amendment election. Uh, there were these problems in a primary, a big primary, but still a primary. We you know, have a few months now till November where turnout's going to be even higher, where the stakes are going to be huge. And there's not a lot to look at both at the county level and the state level to inspire a lot of confidence that this is going to go smoothly. And they've got a short period of time to get this fixed because it's going to be a huge mess if if, if people are waiting seven hours to vote for the- Well,
5: and Cassie, as we're tracking election numbers, the Secretary of State's new election results reporting mechanism also still seems to be in beta, right? Some, some questions, for sure, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cassie's so nice. Well, we, we, we came in this
5: morning and we we're saying, does Harold Dutton have a runoff or not? Secretary of State's page says Harold Dutton doesn't have a runoff. Harris County says Harold Dutton does have a runoff.
7: Right, right, the SOS's website. Um, One
5: example of many that we can right. cite.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I do think thinking about November, like if I'm a county election official, I'm waking up today and thinking, holy crap, how are we going to figure this out? In a, Going into an election that will be the first one without straight ticket voting. When you're going to have an insane, I know it's become like a <laughs> trivia thing, how many times can we bring up straight ticket voting on the TripCast? But you're, you're going to have these insane ballots and a lot of people have thought, okay, this primary will serve as a sort of test run. You know, all the uncontested races are up there in some of these big counties. You've got all these like random propositions that the party is dropping, you have to go through them. And it didn't help that a lot of the new machines, you have to go one race at a time Time on every screen, but I can't help to think, what the heck are we going to do in November, and what is this going to look like then? If in reality, the counties can't get more machines between now and November, that's a pretty unrealistic thing. And so you've got to think something's got to change. And there's been
5: a bunch of reporting. You both, you three, may know something about this more than I do, but there's been reporting over the last couple days that we've closed some number of polling places in the last number of years, yeah, which people are assuming is part of the problem. I don't know whether it is or is not.
1: I think it's part of the problem in some places. I don't think it's part of the problem in the places people think it is. And to overgeneralize and look at the total polling locations that have closed is not a good look. That
5: might be a good story for a news organization, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and is, is all the liberal cable television <clears throat> complaining about the number of polling places closing true or false in terms of the outcome?
6: And Alexa, you told me last night, I believe, that the Texas Southern polling place is a new polling place, right? So this is a place where people didn't get to vote until this year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the many factors that played into the mess that was last night at TSU is that this was a new polling place. Harris County Clerk's Office was really proud of creating a new polling place at an HBCU. That also meant that they had no historical data to go off of to know how many people were going to show up. And the way Diane Troutman said it to me last night is that more people had voted at TSU on Election Day, you know, hours before the last person voted, than had voted there
5: in all of early voting. Who could have imagined that black voters would be pissed in 2020, huh? Right? Couldn't, right. have, couldn't have predicted it. Well, we can are we, Can we talk about Ryan sitting for 10
1: seconds? Okay, you've literally 10 seconds. Seriously,
5: every election cycle there's one race where you go, "What happened?" A guy who spent $2,000 and had 12 followers on Twitter beat Why an do incumbent. You keep mentioning
1: state? the Twitter thing. That doesn't matter to real people. It Twelve. matters
5: to me. I am not <laughs> you a are real not person. You're not real people. 12 is so small. 12
6: is like like, my dad has more than 12 followers on Twitter. <laughs> okay.
5: Right. Mr. Watkins. And yeah. Mr. Watkins runs like, uh, against Ryan Sitton. All Look, <laughs> the guy spent $2,000, ran no campaign, and beat a statewide Republican elected official. Right? I mean, come on. And didn't just beat him. Pasted him. Pasted him in the primary. Do we have any idea what the hell happened here?
6: I mean, we can guess, you know, we can, the person who beat him happened to have the name of the former U.S. Speaker of the House from Texas. Had
5: a good ballot name. Had a good ballot name. I love a good ballot name story. Jim Wright, right?
6: (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell. You know, there are, we haven't talked about Robert Morrow either. Oh
5: my God. Don't talk about him. He'll hear it.
1: I'll and, let you lay that one out. Uh, <laughs> what he wants. Do I have to
6: do I have to lay it out now? Yeah, basically a person known for his sexist and racist rants online, uh, winning, or not, not winning, being the leading vote-getter in a uh, Republican primary for a Republican seat, traditionally Republican seat, for, on the State Board of Education. Um, he will be in a runoff, so that's not a, a final thing. But that's another case where, I mean, the people in the G- GOP were openly saying, we cannot elect this guy, but he's got a name that looks nice on a ballot. It's not the first time that's happened. He was elected uh, chair of the Travis County GOP. Um, A lot of people suspected for the same reason. And so, I mean, these things happen, you know, it's really hard for voters to learn about every single race on the ballot when there's hundreds of names. And sometimes you get these weird results because of it.
1: Yeah, okay, we're just about to I'm gonna ask one last question before we get to Q and A very quickly. Evan, uh, back in November, you you said something on the Tripcast about the idea of Texas becoming a more interesting place from a national political perspective, particularly after the 2018 election. Do we think last night moves it further into that direction?
5: More, 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 I think. Um, the fact that the election last night turned out the way that it did, that it was as close as it was... Um, and, and all the races we've been talking about, you know, the Queris Cisneros race was so interesting, the Granger uh, uh, putna uh, race was so interesting. We, we are still the apple of the national media's eye in terms of the political stories that, uh, that emerge. I think this is a great place to be thinking about this and reporting on this. You know, I don't know whether the 2018 election was a unicorn or the new normal in terms of the state moving from red to purplish or purple or bluish, and we're not going to know until November, and I think people are paying attention to that. We know what California is, right? We know what California is. We do not know what Texas is going to be this fall. That is still an open question, and so yeah, it's more interesting, not less.
1: All right, well, that is all the time we have for today. I'm about to sound like Evan reading the long list of TripFest sponsors, but bear with me. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Texas A&M University, Raise Your Hand Texas, Baylor University, and the 2020 Hot Look Festival our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Alex, Patrick, Matthew, Cassie, Evan, and our producers Michael Ray and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.